these issues of climate change and poverty and environmental degradation are too big for us to fix. We can't fix them, like we can't save the world, but the hope that we have is we don't have to save the world. Like Jesus already has, and saving the world is Jesus' job. He's got that all under control. So as much as like we roll up our sleeves and get stuck into environmental issues and as Christians really work in that space to care for the poor, we care for them even more by pointing them to the hope that we have in Christ because that lasts forever. Countless souls around the world who do not know Jesus and can't easily access the gospel. This is the heart of mission. What small role can you play in God's big world? Missionaries, cross-cultural specialists, pastors, their stories and perspectives can really help us. Thanks for joining us. Grab a cuppa and strap in as we demystify, decode and de-stress the great challenges of cross-cultural mission. Mark Peterson here on the Heart of Mission podcast. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, Jesus' words here in Luke are more than an expression of Jerusalem's joy at his triumphal entry. They are a challenge for us today, a challenge to tell others not to keep the news of Jesus to ourselves. A life of silence in the face of the gospel, well, it wouldn't be right. As a Christian, I can waste my opportunities. When missionaries discern that the Lord wants them to go, they often feel a focusing, an urge not to let any more time go by and to find whatever opportunities they can for sharing Christ. Our guest today is Anna Radkovic, a newly minted missionary who is 28 years old and stepping out on her first term to Kenya in July this year. And she is keen. Anna grew up as a missionary kid, or MK, and so mission is wired into her. She has a big love for those who don't know Jesus. And she's going to serve in the area of creation care. To Anna, caring for God's creation is loving and serving those who live on the poverty line in Kenya. But is conservation actually mission work? Is it a valuable use of her time? Well, Anna challenges us that we should give thanks for our education, our rich theological formation, our privilege, and then roll up our sleeves and get busy serving others, ultimately seeking to make Christ known through that. And that's what she's planning to do. And she expresses this tension between loving and telling so helpfully. Now, just before we start, prior to the interview, Anna and I had been chatting about what it was like being a missionary kid and how much did she really want to share in the interview about some of the challenges that missionary kids face. I didn't want to make her feel uncomfortable. But in the end, she was happy. I asked her and she went there. There's some pretty brutal honesty about what some MKs in her life have had to face and it's important for us to hear it. We're not told that mission will be an easy path and that certainly hasn't been the case for many. But where does it leave us? Should we walk away from the Great Commission? Let's meet Anna Radkovic. Anna Radkovic, it's great to have you on the Heart of Mission podcast. Thanks, Mark. 
You are right in the middle of this strange phase at the moment, aren't you? You're about to head onto the mission field for the first time. But what's your activity looking like at the moment? What are, what are you doing from day to day and week to week? Yeah, I'm in the thick of deputation. So I'm visiting lots of churches at the moment and lots of other um, groups talking to people about mission, visiting a lot of Bible studies. Um, I'm going to a global mission group at Ridley College this afternoon. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting rhythm of life, I think. Uh, I've never done ministry before as a professional job and I think uh, it's just got interesting timings to things. So you don't just show up to work at nine and leave at five. Um, there's lots of things that happen in the evening or during the day and, yeah, it's just a different rhythm of life to what I've ever done before. Um, but it's good. It's keeping me busy. Are you really are you looking forward to what's ahead or is there a sort of a sense of, uh, you know, I'll take it a day at a time. Um, there are some big things there and I, I know God will be with me, but what's your what's your brain and heart saying about this big transition that's ahead for you? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Like I'm definitely excited about um, moving to Kenya and joining the team over there and getting stuck into that work. But I don't know, it's such a privilege to be, I guess, in this season of work as well for the next six months, visiting churches like I don't think I was expecting to enjoy deputation as much as I have, um, but I've really felt the privilege of being invited into churches and given a platform and people are so excited to meet you when they've never met you before and they want to hear your story and they want to share their story with you. And, you know, most of these guys have been supporting Mission and part of CMS for decades longer than I have um, and they've got incredible stories of God's goodness to them and faithfulness to them. So That is really encouraging, isn't it? Because what, what you're doing, it's a big decision to, I guess, to up sticks with life here and to, to move to Africa. Um, tell us about the journey to come to this point, because I, I gather it's been quite a long journey. And I, I wonder if we can, we can start way back, because you actually um, grew up, part of your um, childhood was in Kenya. Was that part of getting you to now, I guess, make this commitment to go back there? Yeah, it's 100% why I'm going back there. I think, um, yeah, the heart of my decision is a relational one. Um, I really love uh, the team I'm going to be joining in Kenya. I know them and they know me. And so, yeah, it's a great joy to be able to join them because I know them. But, yeah, I first went to Kenya when I was six years old. Um, my folks were CMS Michos. They weren't at that time. They were planning on becoming CMS missionaries but wanted to suss out if we as a young family could cope, I guess, living in somewhere like Kenya in Nairobi, which is the capital, because um, it's not the easiest place in the world to live, I think, especially when you're accustomed to we were living in Canberra at the time, suburban Canberra, which is pretty cushy. Um, yeah, so they took us over there when I was six and then um, – I guess they saw that we could cope as kids and as a family. So started the formal process with CMS of applying to become missionaries, getting some theological training. And then when I was nine, we moved over there um, for dad to work. Dad worked in a slum called Korogosho. He's a medical doctor and he set up a clinic there and put a maternity ward on it. Um, and it made a massive impact. It was the only permanent structure, you know, in this whole slum, um, and people for the first time in their lives got really high-quality medical care, um, which was an incredible thing. And God, ma uh, God made sure, Dad made sure that uh, everyone coming through the clinic got good-quality gospel care as well. So all these staff were trained in 
selling the gospel and they had two ways to live, painted up on the waiting room uh, wall and then everyone would come in as they were waiting to be seen at reception. One of the staff would come alongside and sit down beside them and, you know, ask them if they knew what it meant um, and then talk them through it. And it just meant a lot of these people in the slums, a lot of whom were Somali or outsiders and people really that Nairobi as a city had rejected. They only lived in Korogosho because they couldn't live somewhere else. No one really wants to live in Korogosho or a place like that. Um, but, yeah, it meant that they got cared for both medically and, you know, in the gospel as well, pointed to a greater hope that we have um, this must have really had a very significant way, you know, this, most of us don't get to see anything like that sort of diversity of human experience and also to see the gospel in a really sort of frontline kind of capacity like that. Um, I, I'm assuming that this is that this ministry of your parents was, you know, inspiring for you. Yeah, definitely. I think the most inspiring, like there's lots of things that are inspiring about it and I think the older I get the more... I realise how hard that must have been for them. Like, you know, when you're a kid, it's like, oh, yeah, that's just what mum and dad do. But then you're like, oh, dad was like not that much older than I am, you know, when he went and did this incredible thing. Like, yeah, I don't even know how you begin to build that kind of quality of medical clinic in a place like that. Like that's pretty crazy. But I think the most inspiring thing in all of that was just to see them uh take the calling of the gospel so seriously and so radically, like it changed everything about their lives. Um, Yeah, that had been GP obstetrician in Canberra and running a very good medical practice. You know, they were useful at the church that they were there and lived very comfortable middle-class lives um, but decided to give that all up, you know, in order to be useful somewhere else with the skills and abilities that God had given them. And I think that just set the model of what, for me for what it looks like to live as a Christian. Like, you know, you accept the privileges and the wealth and the education that God's given you and you work out how you can be useful with it. Um, and so, yeah, I think for us as kids, there's three of us in my family, older brother and younger sister, I'm the middle. And I think for us it just meant we could never be lukewarm Christians. Like we either had to be in or out, you know, like we either had to take this stuff seriously and for it to radical radically change our lives if Jesus is who he says he is and he is worth living for and that's got to transform how you live your life or you know it's too hard and you want to opt out and you know even if it's real maybe it's not worth living for maybe Jesus isn't as great as he claims to be and that's I guess the direction my brother went in so he opted out but my sister and I opted in and my sister's in Dubai at the moment um doing student ministry over there and, yeah, I'm off to Kenya. So I guess, you know, it's quite obviously shaped our choices and how we are living our lives. Tell us about, I guess, the transition back from being an MK, a missionary kid in Kenya and and coming back to Australia uh, because you would have seen and you you see as you reflect back on those Kenya days, the earlier uh, phase, you would have seen this radical discipleship of your parents but then there's the sort of transition back into Australian life, which is, uh, you know, notoriously difficult for missionaries. How, what did that look like for you and why, you know, what was it that has somehow enabled you to, to come back through that transition and, and see yourself going back out again? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think a lot of it is just the grace of God, you know, and God's spirit really um, 
carrying me through a lot of that. I had massive culture shock when I came back. Like the first year in Australia, I um, lived with David and Rachel Williams, who worked for CMS Australia as well. Their son, Sam, who's my age, went to Nepal for a year. So I got his bedroom, um, which was great. And I think that was really helpful, like living with a family who'd lived in Kenya. They'd been across the road from us and we went on a lot of camping trips and family holidays with them. So they were like second family, really. I knew them better than any of my cousins. Um, And so that was really helpful, I think, being with a family that understood where I'd been and what it's like to transition because they'd been through all that themselves. Um, But I think as well, I was very deliberate in getting involved in church and find and the Christian Union group was huge for me, probably even more than church. Um, just getting stuck in with people my age who wanted to take their faith seriously and they became my people and my community and I knew that I needed Christians around me if I was going to survive. Like I um, had loved being part of the Misho community in Nairobi as well. Some of my closest friends were other MKs and I knew that I was going to need that support if I was going to survive and navigate, you know, life in Australia on my own. Mum and Dad were still living in Kenya when I came back um, or moved here. I don't know if it's coming back, you know, after 10 whatever years. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, really plugged into the Christian group. And I'd been part of Melbourne Uni. uh, first When I first started uh, university, I went to Melbourne Uni um, because I just moved to Melbourne and, didn't really know so I just flipped a coin and ended up at Melbourne Uni um, and tried to get involved in the Christian group there but Melbourne Uni is full of very capable competent people and there wasn't really a place for me to get involved you know I could show up to stuff but there wasn't really a place where I could be part of um, serving or leadership or anything they had enough people to do things um, but then went to NTE the national training event and got chatting with this guy who was at Deakin University, which is a much smaller uni in Melbourne, and he just said, like, oh, we, we're, like, struggling for, like, people to help out with stuff. Like, do you want to come over? You know, you should swap to Deakin and come and help out. And so I did. <laughs> like, I just called up the um, uni, I think, that next week and kind of had a chat about their program and ended up swapping over and got part of the Christian Union group there. And that was massive, I think, in growing me as a Christian and establishing a Christian community here in Australia and providing that kind of support support and stability in order to grow as a Christian. Like, yeah, and God was really kind in the friends that he gave me and the people he mm. put around me there. Like I couldn't have survived, I think, moving to Australia without my Christian community. That's a really, um, it's a really poignant thing to say there. And I guess I want to ask the slightly tricky question. Um, you know, for some missionary kids coming back, it's, it's really not great. And, um, and you know, life can be hard and, and it can, that, that cultural culture shock can be really tricky. What would you say to, um, to the missionary kid who, you know, now an adult would are reflecting back on that time, but has had a, I guess, a faith shocking or a, a faith kind of um, shaking kind of experience of coming back? What would you say to them? Yeah, that's a really hard one. I think everyone's story is going to be different. Yeah, I think that moving back is quite an isolating time and you feel like your legs have been cut out from under you, like you just don't quite understand how things work or 
why it's all changed so quickly. Um, and you're just struggling to cope, right? Keep your head above water a lot of the times. But without, I guess, the maturity or the skills or the emotional awareness to know how to navigate that situation, like you just got to do it. Um, yeah, I guess what I'd say to that person is I'd want to know them, you know, and their story and where they're at. Um, yeah, I guess because I was in a school that had a few missionary kids and we all left around the same time, which was um, at the end of high school. Yeah, not everyone coped, I think. And I don't think I coped particularly well for the first couple of years. Um, it wasn't until I had finished uni and went to America um, where a lot of my friends had ended up, even the ones who weren't American had been at you know, an American system school in Nairobi so they could study in America. So most people had ended up over there for college. And I just took a few months out of life and went across and just floated around all the different people that I'd grown up with. And some people I hadn't seen, but like I think there was one friend I visited who I hadn't seen for 13 years. And when I like showed up on their front door, it was just like nothing had changed. Like they were my family, they were my people. And I think what that kind of experience taught me was um, that I am loved and I'm known and it was just this real grounding moment I think for me in realising that there's this whole community of people out there that I don't talk to and I don't get to see and they're not part of my day-to-day life but they know me and they love me and that's just something that I can't change in geography and time and distance haven't been able to change those things Um, or that love and I think that for me was like oh this is how God loves me like it was just this real moment of um, nothing I do like no geography no like chaos in life none of that separation can change that love that God has for me that's just going to be a constant thing that I can't do anything about Um, he's holding that together just like I guess my friends and family in, well, like not, you know, blood family, but they are family in America and Canada and across the world now, really. Like, they're people that love me. And, you know, these dang oceans like separate us now, but like the hope is that one day, you know, we're all going to get to hang out together for all eternity. And that like makes heaven so excited, exciting for me. You know, it's like, oh, you're going to be there, you know, you person that I love, you're going to be in heaven. And like, I don't get to share this life with you, but I will share the next one. Um, Hmm. Yeah, but there's a flip side to that as well, I guess, where not all of my friends are, well, lots of my MK friends actually aren't Christian anymore. Um, And some have had really, really hard times, I think, in like navigating life and their faith and, yeah, their identity I think is a really big one. It's really hard to know who you are when, you know, you've been tossed about across the world and in different communities and, you know, being the white kid in Kenya is like pretty defining, you know. You know you're not, you don't belong, you're not one of the people but then, you know, you shift back to a place where all of a sudden everyone's white and it's like, oh, I guess I look like everyone now but I don't feel like everyone, I don't relate to them so you're still the outsider. So, yeah, it's a very isolating kind of experience I think in that can mess with your identity unless and unless I think you are sure of who you are and I guess I only have that because I'm sure of who I am in Christ and before God I don't know how you ever ground yourself in that and there's friends that you know it's yeah it's been really 
hard for them and they're still processing a lot of that. And some people, I guess, yeah, didn't make it. Like they tapped out, like it was too hard and they ended up taking their own lives and like that's a really hard thing, you know. But, yeah, different people have different pressures, I guess, and they navigate those pressures differently. Um, So we need the hope that we have in Christ and we need to know that our identity is secure in him otherwise we will drift around, like it says in James, I think, you know, tossed by oceans. It's like, yeah, this life is turbulent. It's chaotic and it's hard. Like if we're not holding on to the gospel and if we don't know that God's holding on to us, it's really hard to navigate. And I thanks so much for sharing um, a difficult question, a difficult answer and a difficult area. And it, it, to me, as I'm hearing you, I'm, I'm reflecting on the, the churches that we were talking about a moment ago who are praying you know, for missionaries as they head out and just the the vital role of praying for missionary kids as well as for the missionaries themselves. And um, and I guess something else that CMS uh, does tend to bang on about, it's not just the pray and give, it's also the care. Um, and I mean, I guess we have to entrust people to God and a lot of our families, I guess, are full of people who choose one way or the other way. And yeah, we, we just need to keep walking prayerfully, don't we? But it, I guess you're, you're expressing for us a, a, yeah, that there is a, there is a challenging journey going cross-cultural and going as a missionary kid. And I thank God that you're, um, you're on the path to mission yourself. You've got your eyes set back on Kenya and God in his kindness is um, is giving you a vision for that. And I'd like to sort of dive into that a little bit. Um, just tell us where is Kenya up to now in terms of the gospel? Are there many Christians in Kenya? Yeah, there totally are. Kenya is like chock full of Christians and it's awesome. It's like, I don't know, it's been interesting uh, being in Australia the past few years and being part of a church, I guess, that's struggled and then now in deputation visiting a bunch of churches that are struggling, whether in terms of numbers or capacity or just energy. And then you like look at Kenya and it's like, man, that church is growing. And like that's where the leaders, you know, are coming out of. It's like, yeah, the awesome Christian leaders of our generation are going to come out of places like Kenya. And they already are. Like the church there is so established and so mature and there are so many great Christians, like even the church that we were part of growing up, Nairobi Chapel, um, yeah, their Bible study resources that they've developed are being used in like Germany and America, you know, like they're exporting the resources now. It's, yeah, we've got this. So tell us, why why are you heading there then? (laughs) Yeah, Um, I'm heading there because of the relationships that I've got um, from growing up there. Um, A lot of my heart is still in Kenya. Um, I really love the place and the people. And I think God's kept that alive for a reason, you know, and I want to honour that. It's easy for those sorts of relationships or that sort of love to kind of fade after a bit of distance and time. But this one just hasn't, like God's just kept it going strong. Um, And I've visited Kenya nearly every year since I left um, back in 2011. Yeah, and every time I've been back, I've visited this team on the coast um, in a little town called Watamu and the team's called Orosha, Kenya. And they are Christians in conservation and they're doing work all up kind of that co- that bit of coast in Kenya. And they could do with an extra pair of hands. Like they're a charity. They mainly work on donations and they're always struggling to find enough staff. They've got the most incredible team really, um, but they don't have enough money or resources, I guess, um, and so often struggle to pay their staff. So people will come 
be part of the team. They love it. You know, they'll get trained up really well. But then they'll realise they can make like four times as much money somewhere else, you know, because they are so well-skilled now after their experience with this team and often that means they move on. Um, some people will stick around for a bit because they're convicted of the work and they love the team and, you know, what they're part of in being part of this work. But So, so Anna, tell us... Um... Yeah, Christians in conservation. Yeah. what does it? What does that look like? What will you be doing? And and what is what is your what is going to be your mission in that? Yeah, or your part in God's mission might be a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah. There's a few questions in that. Um, Christians in conservation. Um, I guess they are the name of the organisation is Rocha, which means the rock in Portuguese. Um, it was originally started in Portugal by a couple UK crosslinks missionaries. And it's called a Russia because the idea is that everything they do is based and built on the rock of Christ. So if Christ is not the foundation, if he's not at the centre of everything they're doing, then the work is in vain. But they also recognise the need or the response as Christians to environmental degradation. Like sin has corrupted, you know, the world. The land is hard to farm. It's full of thistles and thorns. Like species are going extinct and God made this world beautiful and creatively designed it and put a lot of work into it. And we're his church, we're his stewards. So, you know, there's a responsibility there to care for it because it's a way of honouring God and worshipping God, you know. We care for creation as a act of worship. And it's also a way to love our neighbour. A lot of environmental, sorry, a lot of injustice in the world or a lot of poverty issues at the root of them are environmental issues. And if you're not kind of addressing those core issues, Everything else will be limited, I guess, in the development sort of space. So you've got to be uh, caring for the environment to care for people. Yeah, there's a strong motivation as Christians to get amongst that kind of work so that we can honour God with how we treat the world and love our neighbours. But there's also an opportunity there to point to the hope that we have in Christ, right? It's like these issues of climate change and poverty and environmental degradation are too big for us to fix. We can't fix them like we can't save the world but the hope that we have is we don't have to save the world like Jesus already has and saving the world is Jesus's job he's got that all under control so as much as like we roll up our sleeves and get stuck into environmental issues and as Christians really work in that space to care for the poor we care for them even more by pointing them to the hope that we have in Christ because that lasts forever like uh, my dad as a doctor um, you know, in the slums of Kenya would say that as a doctor, in the end, he's a failure because every single one of his patients is going to die. You know, the medical care he can give them is limited. But if he gives them the gospel, that lasts forever. And I guess kind of feel the same about environmental issues. We can work hard, you know, to plant trees and provide people with clean water and work for the restoration of, you know, species that are going extinct. But if we're not pointing people to Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ and Christ as Lord of all creation. You know, this is his world. He's the one that holds it together every second of the day, every minute of the year. Like if we're not pointing people to Jesus, we're only giving them limited care and like not the not the care that they really need. Like, yeah, the heart of the issue is knowing the hope that we have in Jesus and caring for the environment provides an awesome place to start that conversation and to point people Christ. I, I really like the way you are holding those two together. I guess there is a 
there is a tendency for us to to flip to one or the other, isn't there? To be to be sort of saying, "Come on, Christians! Come on, church! You've really got to see all this injustice that's going on. You know, stop all your talk and get get busy with your action." But then you've got your others on the other side who are doing, I guess, the opposite. Who are saying, "What does it look like for you to be um, doing that telling of the gospel?" Like how? What, what are some of the ways that you can see this um, the creation care kind of initiatives that you'll get involved with? How how will you see that? Will it be through a local church, or will it be through people that Arosha serves, or will it be just relationships that you connect with? Like what what's the what's the plan? It's a bit hard to know on this side of going exactly what the plan will be for my role. Yeah, I'll definitely be part of the Arosha team, um, and they run a church, and they're involved with resourcing a lot of churches and they work in a lot of schools, a lot of community groups with a lot of farmers, with a lot of women on the coast. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what kind of work I will do, but I'll help them out in whatever way I can. I guess they've got enough hands on the ground doing the work, but a lot of what they don't have and what they could what they need is some systems thinking and some structures so that they can get on with the work that they're doing on the ground. Like they've got the boots on the ground, they got the skills, they've got uh, the relationships already. So as much as I will work to do all those things and to build those relationships and build language and, you know, I want to invest in the people that I'm working with, like, of course, but I think my value in the team will probably look a lot like behind the scenes stuff so that they can just get on with their, with what they're doing um, and do it well and do it better and have that stuff set up so that it's robust so that if there's changes in the team or changes the leadership, like they can continue the good work that they're doing. And maybe a good way to understand it is like a story that I've told a couple times now. And I love it. It's one of my favourite stories, I think, from these guys. But one of the things they do is um, a regenerative agriculture course. They call it Farming God's Way. It's based on a program out of South Africa, I think. And they go into churches um, in the local area. These are just churches in rural areas, mostly full of subsistence farmers, and they'll preach a four-week sermon series on a biblical overview of creation care. So God made it, God made it good. It's not good now, is it? But, you know, Jesus is coming back to redeem all things and Jesus is Lord of creation, reigning, and, you know, beautiful vision and revelation we have there of what it is all going to be like at the end. And then at the end of that sermon series, they'll offer a regenerative agriculture course that teaches farming kind of broadly based on those biblical principles. So not like prescriptive, but very much like, you know, God set up these systems so that we're putting life back into the soil. That's why we compost. You know, we're not just here to extract as much as we can out of it and then move on to the next patch. There's a lot of slash and burn agriculture in that area. But I guess this is motivating or encouraging people to really care for their patch of land and to steward it well. Um, And there was one lady who'd been through... Um, the sermon series, been through the course and then was like still a bit sceptical. You know, she was like, ah, like maybe, maybe your way is better. This farming God's way is better. But, you know, this is, it's high stakes as well when you're a subsistence farmer. You know, this isn't just like your little veggie patch in your backyard that you're, you know, growing some tomatoes for fun. This is like the food that they're going to eat and their kids are going to eat. So you don't want to get it wrong because the stakes are too high. But, um, she was like, all right, I'll plant half my crops, you know, farming God's way and half I'm just going to do my normal way. And, like, I think God was just really kind to this woman because at the end of the season the farming God's way crops were, you know, like way above, like head and shoulders above the um, other crops. 
And it was this beautiful heart moment for that lady because in that not only did she have more food for her kids, you know, which is great, but, like, she got it. She was like, oh, God's way is better, you know. God Mm. is the Lord of life. Like, he's given life to these crops um, through the way that I farm. And, you know, that's not always going to work that dramatically or clearly because there's still famine and there's drought and there's locusts and things will go wrong with the crops. And at the moment the program's really struggling because there is a massive drought in East Africa and nothing's growing, you know, no matter how you farm it. There's just no water in the landscape and no nutrients in the soil at the moment. But, yeah, it was this beautiful moment where because the team had, like, got alongside this woman and brought her through and connected these farming practices to biblical values, she understood God like she never had before and, like, trusted him in a way that she hadn't before. So, yeah, they do beautiful stuff like that. And they're, I guess, the church in Kenya is very integrated in um, caring for the poor and caring for people. I think sometimes in Australia we can separate out or we'll outsource, you know, care for the poor. It's like, oh, yeah, our church gives some money to Anglican and Anglican cares for the poor. We don't necessarily do it directly. Um, but, yeah, churches in Kenya are very integrated with caring for the poor. It's a real part of their identity as the church is to care for the community around them. Look, just one question to to wind up. If you were to give us three or two or three really practical prayer things to pray for you, Anna, you know, over the next little while as you settle in, as you um, start to try to connect with people and, and do God's work over there, what would two or three really practical, clear prayer points be for you? Yeah, I'd love for you to pray um, that God would protect my faith. I think, you know, um, listened to a sermon yesterday about how Jesus is our high priest and we need him to pray for us because he holds all things together. And without him, they would all fall apart, you know, and that includes my Christianity, that includes my faith. So, yeah, I'm glad that Jesus is praying for me and will do that. You know, you don't have to sign him up to your prayer letter. He's doing that anyway. Um, But, yeah, would love your prayers as well, you listeners. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'd love you to pray that God would protect my faith because all this work falls apart, I think, if I lose that part of it. Yeah, and I think prayer as well so prayer for protection of my faith but and then prayers for the logistics of leaving it's yeah there's a lot you know in applying for visas and getting the tickets and packing up and saying goodbye as well um and still having I guess the energy and enthusiasm to intentionally invest in people like I've still got a bunch of churches to visit and I'm super excited about that it's going to be awesome and I want to be able to do that well and invest in people because I'm going to be sharing the journey with them for you know years um they're going to be my people who are keeping me out there you know and this is our work we're doing together um so I'd love to have the right kind of attitude and energy to be able to invest in people well so that they can invest in God's ministry in Kenya and what would you say to someone who is pondering a radical decision to serve Christ overseas as you have been over these last few years? Yeah, I think work out where you can be useful. Um, There's so many places in the world that need Christians. You know, even Kenya, which is full of Christians, can always do with more gospel. You know, we're never going to reach a saturation point of um, where Christians are needed in this life. Um, So work out, I think, who you are, 
Um, know yourself, I think, is super important. Know yourself before God. So what skills has God given you? What relationships has God given you? Where has God put you now? Like what's the church like around you? Maybe he doesn't want you to go overseas. Maybe he wants you to really invest in your local church or a country church, you know, near you. But maybe he has put a particular place on your heart. Um, yeah, there's some places in the world where it's really hard to be a Christian. Um, talking to some guys from Afghanistan the other day or who were my shows in Afghanistan. It's a really hard place to be a Christian, you know, like you can't meet with other believers, like your family are going to try and kill you for your faith. So, yeah, they need Christians to come alongside them and encourage them there as well. Um, there's no shortage of ways to serve God. We're never going to run out of options there. So, But God has made you an individual um, with particular skills and gifts and abilities and relationships so think through those and then work out how to honor God with what he's given you where he's put you. Anna Radkovic it has been really a real treat having you share with us and share some of your heart and also some of the the vision for what you're going to be doing we will be in praying in prayer for you Uh, it's so exciting to see what you're going to do and the way you're holding together this kind of this creation care under the the umbrella of God's global mission. Um, We're excited. Um, We look forward to hearing what God does through your mission. Thank you so much for being with us on the Heart of Mission podcast. Thanks, Mark Peterson. (laughs) It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us on the Heart of Mission podcast. What small role can you be playing in God's big plans? To find out more about CMS and opportunities that might be there for you, search us on the web to find your local branch and local social media channels. CMS is a fellowship of Christian people and churches committed to global mission. We work together to set apart long-term workers who cross cultures to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for a world that knows Jesus. See you next time.